As I was preparing uh, for this sermon, I mentioned to Pastor Mark that I would be speaking on Habakkuk. And Pastor Mark reminded me that he had recently done a series in Habakkuk. So I asked if I should change, come up with something else, and he just took a deep breath and hung his head and said, no, no one will remember. <laughs> true, true story. Well, Pastor Mark, that is not the case at all. I absolutely did remember. I just didn't think you covered it very well, so I thought I'd give it a shot today. Of course, you know I'm kidding about that. I promise. In fact, for any of you who have ever found yourself on this side of a pulpit, it's a very humbling and stressful ordeal. Not just the public speaking aspect of it, but the gravity of bringing God's word to God's people. To be sound in doctrine, to preach the word and only the word, it is no responsibility and frankly, no small responsibility and it frankly makes me very, very nervous. Here at Galilee, we have been blessed, incredibly blessed to be under the sound, truthful and loving teaching of Pastor Pinkham, Pastor Hopkins, of Pastor Christensen, and now of Pastor Labaz. And it must always remain that Galilee is a church built on the word. And we as a church family bear the responsibility of making sure that remains the truth of this church. As we're reminded in the 17th chapter of Acts, the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians in that they received the word with great eagerness and searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The author of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke is Paul's friend and co-worker in the faith, and yet he says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the word with great eagerness, or as the King James puts it, they received the word with all readiness of mind. I like that expression. But here's the kicker. They searched the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. So if the Apostle Paul was held to that standard, then it goes without saying, you should search the scriptures to make sure that what I share with you today is true. Before we dig into the book of Habakkuk, I want to ask you a question. As I was preparing this sermon, I came across a small piece of paper tucked in my Bible. Years ago, when I was one of the youth group leaders, Brian, Roger, Lynn, you guys will remember this, Emily, uh, we took the kids to Rumney for snow camp, and the speaker that weekend was Andy Giesman. And this piece of paper that I've kept in my Bible all these years was just two or three sentences that I had jotted down from one of Andy's sermons. In what he titled, Your Habakkuk Moment, Andy posed these questions to us, and I want to ask you the same questions as we begin this morning. Are you in a situation that you do not like, you do not understand, you have no control over, and you would change if you had the power? Are you in a situation that you do not like, you do not understand, 
you have no control over and you would change if you had the power. This is where Habakkuk found himself in 600 BC, not long after the death of King Josiah. Josiah, as you may remember, was a righteous king. He implemented spiritual reform in Judah. He abolished the false idols and he led the people in return to God. However, after Josiah's death, the people returned to their wickedness and turned their backs on God. And here we find Habakkuk. A pretty straightforward story of a man, a prophet, who is disillusioned, confused, and upset with God. So, here's the story in a nutshell, and we can go home early today. Habakkuk looks out at the Israelites who have turned their backs on God. He sees injustice, violence, pain, hunger, hopelessness. And he says, God, what are you doing? How long will you let this continue? Wake up, God. I demand an answer. And God replies, you have no idea what I'm doing. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. And it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. I'm not sure why my sermons are so cheery. The last time I preached it was here was uh, from Ecclesiastes where we discussed that life is meaningless. So I'm not sure why Pastor Mark asked me to speak again. At home, if I do a really bad job at vacuuming, I'm hoping that Ann will never ask me to do it again. But that doesn't seem to work here or at home. So let's take a look at this conversation between Habakkuk and God. I'd like to point out three actions that Habakkuk took that I encourage all of us to take when we find ourselves in situations that we don't understand and we want God to change. Action number one, plead with God. Chapter one, starting in verse two. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Not exactly a very spiritual-sounding prayer. How long, God? Why, God? It may not sound spiritual, but it sure is honest. And don't you think God wants our honest prayer? He knows us. He loves us. There is no sense in pretending with God. We see this principle of honest pleading with God throughout Scripture. The Psalms are filled with brutally honest prayers. In Psalm 94, the psalmist pleads with God, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. 
Jesus himself put it this way in Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When you are faced with trials of all kinds, when you don't understand what God is doing or why he appears to be doing nothing, when you are hurting, plead with God. Be honest and plead with God. Back to our conversation between Habakkuk and God. After Habakkuk's pleading, his demanding of an answer, God does answer. Verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Um, what? That is the worst idea ever, God. I'm upset that you're not doing anything about the way we're behaving because we're pretty bad, but you're going to use the Chaldeans to execute your judgment on us? They are way, way worse than us. They are bloodthirsty, heartless, pure evil. This makes no sense. Can we go back to where you weren't doing anything and I was upset about that and then we'll just leave it there? In the following verses, 12 through 17, Habakkuk expresses his confidence in God, but also his bewilderment that God would use a more evil nation to judge a less evil nation. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. 
But then something very important happens in this conversation. In chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This leads us to our second action. Number one, plead with God. Number two, wait for God. Listen to God. What does it mean to wait for God? Ben Patterson, in his book, Waiting, Finding Hope When God Seems Silent, wrote the following. It isn't easy to wait. It demands persistence when common sense says give up. It says believe when there is no present evidence to back it up. Faith is forged in delay. Character is forged in delay. The forge is the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. As gold is purified and shaped in the white-hot heat of a forge, so we and our faith are purified and shaped in waiting. G. Gamble Gordon, or Morgan, put it this way, Waiting for God is not laziness. Waiting for God is not going to sleep. Waiting for God is not the abandonment of effort. Waiting for God means first, activity under command. Second, readiness for any new command that may come. And third, the ability to do nothing until a command is given. The ability to do nothing until the command is given. Habakkuk says he will stand at his watch post and station himself on the tower and look out to see what God will say. J. Vernon McGee put it this way, Habakkuk says he's going to the watchtower to wait. When he says watchtower, he doesn't mean that he's going there to read a magazine. Waiting is action. Waiting takes discipline. And waiting takes humility. One commentator describes standing or waiting this way. To stand firm, as in a state of inner strength, reflecting the fact that one is not moving or running away from something or someone. When you're facing a situation that you do not like, you do not understand, you have no control over, and you would change if you had the power, after pleading with God, are you willing to wait to stand firm, not running away from something or someone? Stand on your watchtower, listen, and wait for God. Habakkuk's waiting is not in vain. The Lord does respond. In chapter 2, God lays out his upcoming wrath and punishment on the evil Chaldeans. Chapter 2 could be called the woe chapter, as God describes the Chaldeans. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who gets evil gains for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, and so on and so on. 
God is letting Habakkuk know that his justice will not go undone. And he reminds Habakkuk that the righteous are to live by faith. Verse 20 concludes, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This leads me to our third action. Number one, plead with God. Number two, wait for God. And number three, trust in God. I asked Hannah if she still had that old shirt she used to wear, and I think she's outgrown it, but she brought it for me today. Guys, remember Hannah wearing this? <laughs> it says, I got this, signed God. God says, I've got this, Habakkuk. Trust me. And he says the same to us. I hear your frustration. I see your tears. I know the situation seems hopeless. I know you're angry. I know you're weary. I know you're scared. Trust me. I've got this. Habakkuk pleaded with God, he waited for God, and in the end he trusted in God. In one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture, Habakkuk concludes with these words, chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 17 through 19, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. The book ends with instructions to the choir master to use stringed instruments. This last chapter, that prayer, was likely used as a psalm to be sung in temple worship. A fitting reminder to us that regardless of our circumstances, God is sovereign, God is our strength, and God is worthy of our trust. The conversation between Habakkuk and God always reminds me of the book of Job, where God also engages in conversation with a man who is demanding answers. I've always looked at God's response to Job's questions as the ultimate smackdown. A huge dose of humility served up to Job. And while it is that, it also brings a great deal of comfort. That may sound odd, but I'd like to take a minute to read God's response to Job's questioning. I'm going to pull out several questions God asked Job throughout chapters 38 and through 40 of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
on where, what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, or caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know this. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Job replies, I lay my hand on my mouth. Good idea, Job. Like Habakkuk, Job pleaded with God, waited for God, and trusted in God. So why do we trust in God? How can we trust God when we look at this world spinning out of control? And what about in our own lives? Do you ever feel like your life is spinning out of control? Like Habakkuk, we look at the world and we look at our own lives and we ask, God, what are you doing? The story is told of a young girl, unaccustomed to traveling, who was taking a train ride through the country. As she was enjoying the view from her window, she noticed a large river in the distance. As the train barreled closer and closer to the river, she began to panic. Surely the train will turn soon and avoid plunging into the river. It became apparent to the girl that they were headed directly for the river, and she was certain they would plunge into the river and all would be lost. She closed her eyes, and at the moment of impact, only to find that as she slowly opened her eyes, they were on a bridge, safely crossing the river below. Two or three times this experience was repeated. A river in the distance coming closer and closer. The panic, the closing of the eyes. And then the realization they were safely crossing the river on a bridge. Finally, the young girl leaned back in her seat and with a long breath of relief and confidence, she said, somebody has built bridges for us all the way. If you're listening today, and you feel yourself hurtling toward a cliff or a raging river, and you fear that all will be lost, it's too dark, the fear is overwhelming, God has built bridges for you all the way. All will not be lost. You will not drown. God has built bridges all the way. I read earlier 
the honest prayer of Psalm 94, that prayer also includes verses of waiting and trust. Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have soon settled into silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. So again, why do we trust God? One word, Jesus. Not only is God sovereign, not only are God's ways not our ways, but God became flesh. Jesus Christ became one of us. He lived, he breathed, he saw the same world we see, spinning seemingly out of control. And let's never forget that he gave us an example of what to do in this crazy world. He fed the hungry. He helped the poor. He healed the sick. He cared for the least of these. He also flipped over the tables of the greedy money changers. He chastised the oppressors. He humbled the proud. He turned things upside down. But he did so much more than that. He lived a perfect life, and then he laid it down. He hung on a cross and took on the sins of the world. He took the sins of Mark Farrington. He took the sins of Ian Stultz. He took the sins of Brian McDougall. He took the sins of Ken Dorenzo. He took the sins of Linda Chambers. He took the sins of Lynn Sarver. He took the sins of Patty Cobb. He took the sins of Russ Hutchins. He took the sins of Howard Ranger. He took them all. And he died in our place. And then he rose from the dead. He defeated death once and for all. And when we place our trust in him alone, he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. And one day, one day, we will be with him forever. Can you picture that day? When we are in the presence of Almighty God, this is what we are trusting God for. We trust that he hears our prayers, our pleading. We wait for him. We listen for him. And we trust that he's got this. And we trust that one day we will be with him, our creator. Got to get this in the right order so everything stays together. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, 
Scott Stultz and I were talking about this. What will we do when we see Jesus? When we are in God's presence? We talked about singing, dancing, shouting for joy. And Scott said very clearly, no, no. I will be face down, silent, on holy ground. It reminds me of the Bart Millard song, I Can Only Imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you, be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. So what is the message of Habakkuk? When we're faced with situations that we do not like, do not understand, we have no control over, and we would change if we had the power, plead with God, wait for God, trust in God. There is hope. One day, all wrongs will be made right. All sorrow will turn to joy. All suffering will turn to freedom. We know how the story ends. Revelation chapter 21. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He shall dwell within them. They shall be his people. And almighty God will be with them. He shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, no more pain. The former things have all passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, Write these words, for they are faithful and true, and it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Father, thank you for the promise that we can trust you. Thank you that you gave your son to pay for our sins, to give us life. And we ask that you would help us when we don't understand. Help us to just honestly plead with you. Help us to learn how to wait and listen for you, and help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.